The foreign policy of the United States over the last 36 years has been a train wreck, and the same people responsible for bringing us unwinnable wars and constant conflict, they're actually trying to weasel their way back into power. So who are these people and what are they hoping to accomplish? I recently spoke with documentary film director Robbie Martin, where he helped to answer those questions. Let's take a look. Robbie, your new film series, A Very Heavy Agenda, uh, it kind of tells the story of what's happened with our, our hawkish foreign policy over these last, you know, 16 years or so, uh, even a little before that. Uh, give us a quick primer on, on the overall take of the film. Well, it's a, it's a three-part documentary series um, that pretty much uh, chronologically goes over what kind of damage um, mostly the neoconservatives were doing starting with the Bush administration and then going all the way until um, the present. So most of the movie covers sort of the eight years of Obama and how the neocons crept in uh, during his administration and um, influenced it um, in terms of the Ukraine policy, uh, the Syrian policy, um, our intervention in Libya, and pretty much every military intervention that happened um, while Obama was in office was in some way either egged on or influenced by the neocons, some of them actually inside of his own administration. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that you discuss in the film is the Project for a New American Century, PNAC. Uh, you know, that is a story that a lot of Americans either didn't pay attention to, you know, during the you know, Clinton administration and the Bush administration, or they simply didn't hear about it. So tell us a little bit about PNAC and how they help to influence, you know, how uh, basically our horrible foreign policy for the last couple decades. Yeah, I mean, when most people think of neoconservative foreign policy, the names, the American Enterprise Institute, the Hudson Institute, sort of these more um, traditional think tanks in D.C. take top billing. Um, but Project for the New American Century, in a lot of ways, was actually the most um, influential neoconservative institution over the Bush administration. In fact, I think over 15 members of PNAC um, actually went directly into the Bush White House uh, immediately when he got into office. And you can look at, you know, letters they were writing, essentially lobbying presidents um, ever since Bill Clinton to get us into um, foreign intervention. So they wrote a letter to Bill Clinton in 1998 um, asking him to overthrow Saddam Hussein. Um, it was signed by people like Jeb Bush, Paul Wolfowitz, Francis Fukuyama, um, so, uh, many others who ended up going directly into the Bush administration. And uh, what they've been doing the whole time is essentially working as an outside agitating force to get whatever administration is currently in power to engage in some new military conflict. But I think probably the thing that what interests people the most about PNAC is in 2000, they actually wrote a document called Rebuilding America's Defenses, which lays out sort of the post 9-11 Bush world. And in that document, they ask or they say um, that to uh, accomplish this buildup of our military in this sort of short time frame that we'd like, um, it would require an event, uh, something resembling a new Pearl Harbor, a catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor which of course a year later 9-11 um, happened and it sort of allowed them to do all the things that they laid out in this document. And you know if you look today, go online and you try to find the project for a new American century, uh, at least on the surface it appears that this group has disappeared, 
uh, or they disbanded, they no longer exist online. Are they still around? Are they still out there, you know, coordinating with each other or have they really disbanded and gone their separate ways? Oh, no, they're definitely still out there. Um, I describe it to people like what Blackwater did. Um, you know, if you search for Blackwater now on the Internet, you won't find that, their name anymore because they've changed their name several times since all the controversies happened. So it's a similar thing to Project for the New American Century. Somewhere around the time of 2007, um, 2008, they decided to close down the Project for the New American Century and essentially reopen it under a new name which um, what the intentions behind this reopening was not only sort of a rebranding um, to make people forget, you know, what kind of reputation the neocons had. They had a such a bad reputation that it was in a very simple way a rebranding effort. But I think more importantly, what they were trying to do, just like they tried to do during the Clinton administration, is neoconservatives realized that partisanship is actually unimportant. What's more important is trying to reach across the aisle and influence um, Democrats, essentially, during the Obama administration to go along with sort of this Bush foreign policy. And that's what they did. Um, I would describe the foreign policy initiative, which is their rebranded think tank, as PNAC 2.0. And, um, and they did that. When, as, soon as, they, as soon as Obama got into office, they egged him on um, for roughly the first four years of his presidency and were cheering on many of Obama's uh, foreign policy actions. Um, you know, that could arguably could be described as neocon. Um, Hillary Clinton just got a, uh, a, I guess you'd call it a big endorsement uh, from Robert Kagan. Uh, you talk a lot about Kagan in the films. Uh, lay out his story. Why, why should the voters be concerned about a guy like Kagan throwing support behind Hillary Clinton? Well, I think the main reason is that he was, I mean, he was the co-founder of the project for the New American Century which of course is this you know, very influential neoconservative think tank. But why I think Kagan is particularly uh, dangerous <laughs> is because he's really good at appealing to liberalism. So when you see this new op-ed that he's writing, it's essentially an anti-Trump screed saying that uh, the GOP is making a huge mistake by letting someone like Trump take over. And whether you agree with him or not on that, I mean, I'm sure many liberals would agree with that. Um, it's very fascinating to watch the way he's characterizing the situation. He calls right, uh, Republicans Islamophobes, bigots, um, and I would agree with him on that. But this is language that usually liberals and people on the left wing use. Um, and at, at the, in the end of this op-ed, he basically says that he has little hope for Rubio and Cruz and Hillary Clinton's foreign policy is more in line with um, his ideology than Trump. Um, or pretty much anyone that he hopes in the GOP um, field right now. So, I mean, I think it's, it's, it, it gives an interesting insight into what I was just talking about, this, that partisanship to the neoconservatives isn't as important as getting their foreign policy message across. And Hillary Clinton apparently is someone who is going to deliver that message and is more in line with the neoconservative ideology um, than, uh, than Obama even. And they've actually said this. Um, other neoconservatives are saying now that they, you know, they would have rather had Hillary Clinton as president in 2008 um, because she is so in line with the way that they think. 
And, you know, she's been getting, you know, huge money uh, from the defense industry. Uh, they've given to the Clinton Foundation. So Hillary Clinton is, is really right along with these these people. I mean, her, her views on foreign policy are much more aligned with what we saw from George W. Bush than, say, her opponent, Bernie Sanders. With Bernie Sanders, we're not going to get, you know, four, eight years of endless war. Hillary Clinton... We don't know, but we can look at her donors, we can look at her advisors, and we can see that these are problematic. Uh, but but back to Kagan a little bit. Is Kagan still in the picture? Does he still have influence over foreign policy today? Well, he was, I mean, I think inside the actual U.S. government, I'm not sure how much influence he still has today. Um, but uh, I think uh, very few people realize that his wife, uh, Victoria Newland has an incredible amount of influence inside the Obama administration, um, and and Robert Kagan was actually appointed a position in the State Department by Hillary Clinton when she, when uh, she was appointed Secretary of State. So not only does he have sort of a, a influential, you know, arguably, you know, we don't really know what his direct influence is, but his wife um, has pretty much been in charge of the uh, Eastern European. Um, NATO policies um, for the last four years um, in the State Department, and uh, you know, arguably she uh, has a, had a role to play in sort of the Ukraine, um, the Ukraine situation that erupted um, a couple years back. So I think that that's you know what people should be looking at is you know Victoria Newland and and Robert Kagan sort of as, as this power couple um, that have inserted themselves into. U.S. government policymaking and foreign policymaking. You know, uh, you just mentioned Ukraine, and, and that's another point I want to get to that you discuss in your films, is uh, the media's role in all of this. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, Liz Wall from RT America um, decided on air she was going to announce her resignation, saying she could not work for this, you know, Russian propaganda network. Um, I was... I guess you could call lucky. Mike Papantonio was filling it for Tom Hartman. We were in the studio when that happened. Um, and there was just a sense of shock among everybody there and more of a, what the hell are you talking about than a right on, you know, do the right thing. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, your sister, Abby Martin, was a host on RT for a very long time. And so, you know, Liz wanted us to believe that there is this big you know, Russian conspiracy, they're trying to, you know, influence the media. Um, I haven't seen that. Have you? No. I mean, I, I have, you know, I mean, Russia Today, you know, ha has put out some stuff that is maybe, you know, a little bit Russian-leaning. Um, it's understandable. It's a Russian-owned television channel. Um, you know, Tom's program, Abby's program were very much editorial content. It was all sort of their own, you know, opinions bringing to the table, bringing guests on. Um, I think that criticism can only really be leveled at like the just the sort of the news content, the news cycle content they do. But even still, I mean, compared to the Western media, it's completely dwarfed by sort of the slant and the obvious um, propaganda that the Western media is putting out, CNN, uh, MSNBC even, of course, Fox News. So, yeah, it was completely uh, ridiculous for Liz Wall to say that she can no longer work for a Putin, a white, uh, what did she call it, a network that whitewashes the actions of Vladimir Putin. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's straight out of an, an, a neocon script. Um, and then, of course, it was uh, revealed later um, 
and I don't know if Max Blumenthal, Rania Kalak were the Rania, uh, sorry, were the ones who actually discovered that. But um, but uh, the Foreign Policy Initiative, uh, which is Project for the New American Century 2.0, uh, announced on Twitter something big is about to happen on RT in about 20 minutes, um, and that was Liz Wall's resignation. So for some reason or another, this neoconservative think tank wanted to put out the message that they were trying to sort of launch this, I would describe it almost like an information war against Russia, um, not even just against the network. It was something, I think, deeper than that for them. And, you know, it, it, as, as you mentioned in the films, they need an enemy. You have to have this enemy to unite the public in your quest for war. And Russia, you know, God, since the Cold War for decades now, that's kind of always been our go-to enemy. You know, oh, something's bad. Russia did something that we, you know, we do the same thing elsewhere, but they're doing it. So now we all have to be against it. Americans unite. We have to be ready to go to war with Putin. I mean, it's ridiculous when you consider, you know, some of the real foreign policy crises that we have in this world right now. I mean, we have areas that are being decimated by climate change, uh, you know, horrible dictators out there. But the U.S. wants to be the police, we want to say that you have to do exactly what we do, exactly what we say. You have to model yourselves after the United States, and we see how well that worked in Iraq, rather than offering help. And, and I think that's the big problem, is that we've turned from a helpful nation into a war-hungry nation. And uh, I, I don't see this changing anytime in the near future, especially when we look at the people running for president today. Uh, do you see any hope among any of those people for any kind of change? No, I, I don't. Um, but what's interesting is there is seems to be a weird neocon, I would call it almost neocon panic over the Trump presidency. And of course, I mean, <laughs> presidency, I mean, in, you know, potential presidency. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm not reading into that in the sense that, you know, that means that Trump is somehow going to have good foreign policy. But it is interesting to see how much they're freaking out over the potential of him winning. And I don't really, I don't really quite know what that means, except for I think that um, it's, it's they're not sure about him. He's, he's such a wrecking ball. Um, you know, he's gone in there and sort of upset their show so much that um, they're already talking about sort of rigging the, the uh, Republican convention or having a brokered convention or whatever so that he, even if he gets enough votes, uh, that he won't even be allowed in. Um, but what's also interesting is I see a problem now is a lot of Trump supporters are starting to um, use the term neocon um, because they see that neocons are actually so upset over Trump and they're starting to use it. And I always get worried when sort of a, you know, um, a vitriolic, uh, blowhard uh, sort of group of people starts using a, a valid term like that because, you know, there's always a danger of something, a word like that becoming meaningless and becoming sort of weaponized in the election cycle. Um, and that's, I think, what I'm fearing right now. But it just in terms of good foreign policy, I mean, I think we are pretty much screwed in terms of our options. I mean, I am not even really... Uh, thrilled with Bernie's uh, foreign policy from what I've seen. So I don't have much hope, to be honest. Robbie, uh, uh, film series is a very heavy agenda. Where can people find it? 
Uh, they can uh, get a DVD copy of it uh, at uh, VeryHeavyAgenda.com. It's a three-part series, so it's actually three different DVDs. The third one is coming out in late March, and uh, they can also watch it streaming online um, at the same website. Excellent. Robbie, thank you very much for talking with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Robbie, viewers just witnessed the second part of your documentary series, A Very Heavy Agenda. This part is titled, How We Learn to Stop Worrying and Love the New Neocons. Who are the new neocons and why did you decide to tackle them in a film? Well, the reason I decided to tackle them in a film um, is not because people haven't made documentaries about the neocons before. But when they have, it's mostly been about um, George W. Bush, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, people that are mostly very familiar and uh, you know associated um, with the Bush administration itself, or were actually in the Bush administration. Um, but I, I was under the wrong uh, impression that most of the neocons or the people who had sort of um, been the ideology that drove the Bush administration foreign policy had had gone away or had mostly retired or had sort of gone out of the political scene. Um, but that turns out to be completely um, the opposite from the truth. Um, and that uh, a lot of neocons are actually um, very influential right now. Um, and they have been since the Obama administration started. Um, and you know, specifically the movie covers um, who I would consider some of the most influential neoconservatives, uh, Bill Kristol, Robert Kagan, uh, the rest of the Kagan family itself, um, and people like that. And then you also have, um, you know, the, specifically the new generation of neocons, um, people like uh, Eli Lake and Josh Rogan, uh, writing for, you know, they used to write for a millennial publication, The Daily Beast. So you see neocon propaganda now not coming from places necessarily like Fox News and Weekly Standard, but also The Daily Beast and websites like that. And I've seen the, the two parts that you've released so far, Robbie. You edited this film. You even came up with your own original soundtrack with movies uh, you made. But to make this film, you had to sift through years of archive footage uh, to really get uh, these neocons to tell their story and to come to life in their own words. What did you learn the most when looking through that footage? I mean, I guess what... I, I wasn't even planning on making a movie when I first started looking through this footage. I was mostly looking through it um, for research to write articles for and stuff like that. Uh, so what struck me about the footage was just how good they were at lying and being um, openly manipulative and also being extremely candid about the um, imperialist aims that they had, um, which you know, pretty much the golden rule for the neocons is any time a military confrontation or sort of military situation or military action by the U.S. becomes possible, sort of on the horizon, they rush to try to push uh, the sort of the dialogue to get closer and closer to an actual conflict. They try to inch forward um, at every opportunity uh, that arises uh, to do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, the neocons are, uh, they are incredibly good at lying, and um, that's probably the biggest compliment I would give them. 
What I learned the most is how uh, prevalent they are in all administrations. You talked about how people uh, assume that they are associated with the Bush administration, but something you break down really well is how uh, they've played a role in the Obama administration. Um, but you talked a little bit about them being manipulative. How does that play into the so-called information war? I mean, we see even in that tease how they've tried to take on this network, for example. Yeah, no, that was a very fascinating incident because uh, before that happened, um, before uh, Liz Wall's resignation and uh, the sort of series of attack pieces and attack press coverage started coming out about Russia today, I didn't even really know the Foreign Policy Initiative existed, which is the think tank that my movie uh, pretty much centers around. Um, but the, it's if you trace back the roots of neoconservative ideology um, all the way back into the 1960s, uh, there was a magazine put out by Irving Kristol, Bill Kristol's father, called Encounter Magazine that was funded by the CIA. And uh, Encounter Magazine was sort of a, a magazine for European intellectuals. It wasn't even really for like patriotic people, anti-communist people, anything like that. So I think that gives an interesting insight into just what kind of information war the neocons are waging. And then also... Um, what kind of information war the U.S. government has been waging that the neocons um, were front and center uh, at ground zero in sort of the formation of some of the information war techniques. Robert Kagan, actually, um, one of the co the co-founder of PNAC and the co-founder of the Foreign Policy Initiative, he used to work for the U.S. Information Agency as a young man uh, for the Reagan administration, um, which is basically just propag uh, the propaganda uh, arm of the United States government. And he's actually uh, married uh, to Victoria Newland. But can you give some examples also of how uh, in the past uh, uh, these neocons have manipulated the media? Oh, my God. I mean, probably one of the most horrific examples of them manipulating the media. And it gets largely overshadowed by this idea that Bush lied about WMDs, which he did uh, lie about WMDs. But I think it sort of misses a greater, more egregious thing that the neocons actually accomplished, which was following 9-11, uh, right after 9-11, uh, within three weeks of uh, those attacks, uh, weaponized anthrax was sent through the U.S. mail to prominent senators and figures in the U.S. media. And as soon as that happened, the neoconservatives specifically neoconservatives outside of the Bush administration, Robert Kagan, Gary Schmidt, Bill Kristol, immediately jumped on that chance to try to tie this domestic um, uh, biological weapons attack with Saddam Hussein with absolutely zero evidence. They, they did this as early as October of 2001. So um, they basically played on our hysteria and fear during a, a time period of national panic um, to try to push through a war using complete lies. Mm -hmm. And as we know now, um, the anthrax was not sent out by Saddam Hussein or any Islamic terrorist. It actually came from a U.S. bioweapons lab domestically. Uh, there's that iconic picture of uh, Colin Powell holding up anthrax, uh, I think, at a congressional hearing that came to define uh, that whole push. Exactly. Uh, um, 
But finally, Robbie, in watching your film, one might reach the conclusion that these people that you're talking about, these powerful think tanks and individuals, don't want and didn't want the Cold War to ever end. Why is that? And also, who are they funded by? Well, it's interesting when you go back and watch a lot of these neocons in the 90s, um, they're very disappointed, uh, not necessarily at the fall of the Soviet Union, um, because a lot of neocons were behind that, but they're disappointed that it creates a void and sort of a, an uncertainty for them where they do not know how American hegemony will be able to continue at the rate and the force that it was operating at during the Cold War, because the Cold War gave us an excuse to ramp up um, you know, all these military maneuvers and, and posturing and stuff like that. So they knew that as soon as it ended that they, they were kind of panicking, like what do we do now to convince people that America basically needs to constantly be building up its military and build it up to even a greater level than it was during the Cold War. Um, and and uh, when you hear Robert Kagan talk about the Cold War, um, he expresses nostalgia for it. I mean, he describes the world during the Cold War as the bipolar world, um, meaning that uh, it sounds like a crazy phrase, but what he means when he says that is that the world was in some sort of um, like yin and a yang, kind of almost like a balance during the, the Cold War, and now it's not, and it's been thrown into chaos, as he, mm. as he says. Um, and in terms of who they're fun being funded by, I mean, they're largely being funded by actual defense contractors and weapon manufacturers like Raytheon, um, who openly will sponsor the foreign policy initiatives, um, talks, and, and things like that. And finally, Robbie, where can people see this documentary? Uh, they can check it out at averyheavyagenda.com. Uh, parts one and two are currently out, and part three um, will be coming out soon. Robbie Martin, thank you so much. His documentary is A Very Heavy Agenda. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to The Liberty Report. I'm Daniel McAdams. I'll be hosting the show today because Dr. Paul is out of town. Uh, if you follow the show, and especially if you follow the Ron Paul Institute, which I'm the director of, you know that one of our favorite things to talk about is the neocons and the neocon stranglehold on foreign policy, their stranglehold on Washington, how they've been able to frame the issue that everyone who doesn't agree with them is extreme, uh, and they are the mainstream, whereas in fact they are probably the most extreme people on earth. Well, we're very fortunate today to be joined by a filmmaker who I just came aware of, uh, of his film. He has a three-part documentary series called A Very Heavy Agenda. Uh, he sent me a link to the first two installments a couple of weeks ago, and I sat down and was blown away for, you know, two or three hours. They're, they're long films, but they're fascinating films. Robbie Martin is the director, producer, filmmaker of these films. Robbie, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Daniel. Well, thanks for making these films. You know, one of the things I think is most important about the two episodes I've seen so far, and the third installment is coming out this month. We'll talk about that later. But what's important is, in my opinion, is it focuses on the continuity of the neocons in Washington. No matter who is sitting at the throne of the presidency, the neocons are there to give advice, to whisper in the ear. And so yours was a, was a non-ideological film. You didn't want to just attack Bush or just attack Obama, the Democrats or Republicans. And I think it made it for a very powerful film. Um, 
But I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, if you can recap the first two films. Uh, just sort of the main idea of, of what the plot is, uh, what the films are about, so the readers can get a little bit of a flavor. Sure. Yeah. I mean, going off of what you just said, um, sort of in the intro there, about how you know a lot of the times when people make movies like this, they are maybe more partisan uh, tinged, um, or they're they're about Bush. I mean, even the the film The Power of Nightmares, that's mostly about the neoconservative influence, um, is mostly about the Bush administration and the people that were in his inner circle. So. A very heavy agenda in a very basic sense, all three parts of the film are um, specifically focusing in on who I consider some of the most influential neoconservatives in D.C. And, you know, names like Richard Pearl and Michael Ledeen would probably come to mind for most people when um, you talk about most influential. But I think what they didn't succeed with, people like William Crystal and Robert Kagan did succeed with, which is actually rebranding neoconservatism to be something that has some sort of bipartisan appeal um, that it can actually influence both sides of the political spectrum. Um, and A Very Heavy Agenda Part 1 kind of recaps um, what the project for the New American Century actually was, uh, what they wrote, um, who was part of it. Uh, not just who signed their letters, um, you know, because people like Jeb Bush, Dick Cheney, Rumsfeld, they did sign uh, the PNAC letters, but they weren't the people who actually were writing a lot of this, the policy. Um, it, it, it wasn't them. It was people like Robert Kagan, people like Donald Kagan, um, and even uh, the, Robert Kagan's brother, Fred Kagan. Um, so in part one, uh, it kind of shows how uh, after the Bush administration ended, um, these neocons in D.C. realized that they needed to sort of try to um, reach out to the other side of the aisle, um, you know, uh, the Democrats, and to take a, a less partisan approach than they had before. And I tried to show that a little bit in part one, but mostly part one is, is showing how um, they didn't go away. Uh, the, the project for the New American Century, when it closed, um, it didn't simply disappear. It actually reopened uh, under the name the Foreign Policy Initiative, um, and that was sort of the purpose of part one. And in part two, I start right back off at the point where uh, the Foreign Policy Initiative is now, um, uh, you know, the new neocon think tank uh, that they've created, and the Obama administration is is now in office. And um, through a combination of, you know, you could argue, and, and I can only really speculate um, uh, based on what uh, decisions Obama has made, but uh, a combination of naivety or just, um, you know, maybe not understanding the way the whole game was played, uh, Obama hired Victoria Newland, um, Robert Kagan's uh, wife, uh, to be in charge of an extremely important um, policy position, um, you know, policymaking position in uh, the State Department. Um, so, these are all things that I cover in part two, and in uh, if you know, in terms of like who are the main characters of of these films, I would say part one it's mostly Robert Kagan and Bill Crystal, and in part two it's mostly focuses in on Victoria Newland, and kind of um, instead of just showing sort of the behind the scenes inside baseball, the neocons talking amongst themselves. Part two shows how their rhetoric gets filtered down into the mainstream media landscape and actually, uh, you know, 
creates a, immense damage in terms of what, like, you know, how they can control the narrative just by inserting little talking points here and there. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's part one and two, pretty much. Yeah, you know, when I, was, I started watching part one, and uh, part one is interesting because it has no narration. Essentially, you are letting these people speak for themselves, which I think is, is, a, is a very clever thing. But what I was thinking when I was watching it is that you succeeded in rescuing all of these little quotations, all these little interviews from the memory hole. Because the thing about the neocons is every day is a brand new day for, for them. Uh, they don't want you to know what they said yesterday because what they said yesterday was wrong. Iraq wasn't a cakewalk. Uh, all of these things didn't go smoothly. And so they never want you to go back and see these things. Uh, and that's what you captured with part one, which was, was great. Uh, but taking off on what you said earlier, here's something from the film. And you had Robert Kagan. I think he was on C-SPAN. And the one thing about the Kagans and, and, and Crystal even, these are not bomb-throwing types. They're actually uh, very civilized, uh, almost friendly types, and they have a way of, of bringing you on almost with a sort of charm. But here's what Kagan said, um, and this is from your film. Uh, what people call neoconservatives, I actually call mainstream, bipartisan view. <laughs> and, but the thing is, he's right in a way, uh, and that is because... <clears throat> Uh, but that's only part of the story. He's right because the only view that is able to come through is the neocon view. When the TV is looking for, when Fox is looking for an expert, even MSNBC, CNN looking for an expert, they'll have someone like John McCain or Bill Kristol. These are the foreign policy experts. So they've been able to make something very extreme look very mainstream. Yeah, um, and that's, I, I guess, what I found disturbing while making this film was that uh, uh, the neoconservatives not only have succeeded in um, making some of these ideas mainstream, I feel like the culture in D.C. in general has shifted more towards um, essentially the normalization of what is considered being a neoconservative. Um, it's, the word is almost um, considered anachronistic now. People uh, don't use it anymore, and uh, but it's but I think that they're more almost more influential right now than than even possibly when uh, when they were in the Bush administration because at least in the Bush administration it was very clear to people I'm assuming like you and, and Ron to see that and to know these are neocons um, we know who these people are we know what they're trying to do now it's a little bit more confusing and things are more merged uh, together where there are a lot of people who seem centrist and who seem like, um, uh, I mean, one of the parts of part two that I, that I focus on is the, these new neocons, sort of the new generation of journalists and people out there who are going around helping sort of the old school neocons, um, like people like Eli Lake who write for Bloomberg. And, yeah. and that's a whole new thing that's happening now is a lot of these journalists have a lot of credibility among younger people um, and younger intellectuals um, than you know than someone like Bill Kristol or Robert Kagan. Actually, that's when I when I knew that I wanted to talk to you and have you on the show is when you brought out this point about the younger generation of neocons, because you're right they're very they're very media savvy. You look at someone like Michael Weiss, uh, Eli Lake. You point out uh, they're very savvy. They have a, the Daily Beast has a huge uh, readership among young people. Uh, and they're also very aggressive. They're, the older neocons, even the Kagans, forget about the previous generation, 
still had somewhat sort of an erudition about them. These, these, uh, the new generation strikes me at least as more like attack dogs. And, uh, and, and I noticed with some uh, glee that escaped me as I was watching that you did focus a little on Jamie Kerchick, who I think encapsulates the idea of an attack dog neocon. You know, he is, uh, he is with the Foreign Policy Initiative, which you focus on a lot in the second film. And uh, he is uh, this sort of well-paid attack dog who does nothing but sit around looking for things to attack. And I remember when we opened the Ron Paul Institute back in 2013, it was either the day we opened or a day or two later, there he was firing out 1,500 words about how we're a bunch of kooks, conspiracy theorists, awful, don't listen to them, try to ignore them, stay away from them. So it, it is, that was a very interesting and very important part of the film. It almost needs fleshed out more, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a good point you make. Part of the reason I didn't flesh it out more is because I didn't want to feed his ego. <laughs> because <laughs> because uh, he is, I mean, he does seem to almost thrive on that kind of negative attention. I almost see him as like a James O'Keefe-style agitator for the neocons. He, he reminds me of, he has similar techniques, except the things that Jamie Kirchick are, is doing are meant to sort of appeal to liberals oftentimes. Mm -hmm. So like when he did the protest against the gay law on RT, um, he was doing that sort of under the guise of I'm a liberal activist. Mm -hmm. When in reality he was a fellow at one of the most hardcore neoconservative think tanks yeah. on the planet. And the agenda um, is to bash Russia no matter what. Of course, uh, yeah. And, <laughs> and so that's, that's what's interesting to me. And then you'll see other sort of triangulation efforts between him and his buddies um, in D.C., uh, so, for example, after him and Ray McGovern went at it in an interview, or in like a discussion together, yeah. um, he was kind of embarrassed afterwards because Ray McGovern, I think, made him look like a fool uh, because of the things Jamie Kerchick was trying to smear him with. So Rosie Gray, uh, a few weeks later on BuzzFeed, writes this hit piece on Ray McGovern, essentially calling him a, a racist and a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> and I was thinking, hmm, isn't that convenient that one of Jamie Kerchick's friends... Um, you know, writes his hit piece about Ray McGovern after, after Ray McGovern made Jamie look like a fool on live television. That is actually very Soviet, isn't it? <laughs> a oh, popular yeah. front. The other thing that's interesting, and you don't necessarily get into this, although it's hinted at, and maybe you get into it in part three, but I think it's so critical, is the issue of funding. And funding is how they dominate the agenda. You know, these organizations are enormously well-funded. Uh, I think you had several clips from the Institute for the Study of War, and they portray themselves as a group of intellectuals, and they do have very good maps on Syria, I have to say. But, you know, it, it takes about three minutes to click through and find their supporters, and their supporters are Raytheon, uh, you know, probably a Lockheed, but whatever, you sort of go down the whole list, they're all the military-industrial complex. So the neocons and the think tanks that they populate are, are sort of represent the merger of corporate uh, military-industrial complex and government money uh, that's invested to create policy that then goes back and creates more money for them through new wars. So this is really a stranglehold on, on opinion, on public opinion. It strikes me as, as almost un-American. No, it's absolutely ridiculous that, that these um, think tanks are, are, I mean, especially something like the Institute for Study of War, that is 100%, I think, funded by defense contractors. And um, they signal boost, you know, constantly um, anything that could potentially involve the United States getting into, like, a new war. But the Institute for Study of War is specifically 
um, is probably one of the most like academic, nonpartisan seeming think tanks um, in D.C. that's all about war, but it's ran by Kimberly and, and Fred Kagan. Um, Kimberly Kagan is, of course, uh, the sister-in-law of Robert Kagan. Um, and, and once again, um, in, in my movie, I show her being asked if she's a neocon and she has that weird stock response that they all do where I, you know, she says, I don't even know what that means, um, anymore. Um, you know, completely plain dumb and they do, and it, and, and you mentioned their maps. I mean, their maps are pretty much the map that you see when it comes to like what the, what the ongoing situation is in Iraq and Syria right now. The New York Times, pretty much every mainstream um, media outlet runs their maps. Um, but the other side of it is that I, that I find interesting is that the defense contractors, um, unlike a lot of other corporations, this form of lobbying that they do in the form of uh, these neoconservative think tanks is a whole different animal than the type of lobbying that we normally see, where they actually have a whole intellectual class of people in D.C. who are not just helping them advertise, but writing like rationalizations and almost like an ideology um, to sort of get behind the weapons they're trying to sell, essentially. Yeah, it's just blatant. And I remember when I was on the Hill with Dr. Paul, he would always have Fred Kagan coming in and sitting down as the great expert. There was never anyone, you know, this was supposed <laughs> to be, the Foreign Affairs Committee was supposed to be where you debate these these issues and come up with some sort of a policy. It was only always one side. It was always Fred Kagan he was always telling us how wonderful the surge was going to be in Iraq. And then when it happened, how wonderful the surge was in Iraq. And then afterward, how wonderful the surge is going to save things. He's not saying very much about that now. Uh, but um, we're going to have to unfortunately close in a bit. But I do want you, if you don't mind, to talk a little bit about part three, uh, which is coming out, if I'm right, later this month. Give us a little bit of a preview and then let people know where they can, where they can watch these films. Well, you can watch all of them at a very heavy agenda.com. Uh, it takes you to links um, to Vimeo on demand. And right now, we're actually running a special um, a freebie of part one. You can watch it on the website filmsforaction.org for free, uh, starting, uh, starting yesterday and running the whole week until uh, this coming Monday. So definitely check that out. Um, I'll be releasing a commentary track. Uh, for part one fairly soon if you want to get some of the backstory on, on more details about the story in that one um, but part three um, I'm glad you brought up uh, Fred Kagan again because part three um, closely follows sort of the rest of the Kagan family and what those people are doing and then also the fathers of some of these uh, neocons so, so I go into the backstory of Irving Crystal I cover Donald Kagan and I also I discovered a, a clip that I, as far as I know, hasn't been posted anywhere else online. It was online to begin with, but it's part of like a long radio broadcast where on 9-12-01, um, uh, 2001, Don and Fred Kagan actually went on, um, oh, sorry about that. Don and Fred Kagan actually went on a radio show and said that they want U.S. troops to invade Palestinian territories as a response to 9-11. <laughs> Don Kagan also said on the same show that he believes that people are going to become complacent since they think 9-11 is a one-off, and what if the terrorists had anthrax on that plane? 
Oh. Now, keep in mind, this is 9-12, yeah. uh, one day after 9-11. Before anybody knew that the anthrax attacks was happening, it didn't act to mail. Um, the letters didn't get sent out until 9-18. <laughs> um, so some very interesting things in this, in this uh, conversation. And he also makes some blatantly racist statements. He, he'll, he talks in this conversation about how Arabs only understand force. <laughs> and he repeats this meme several times, um, which is something that neocons tried to hide and, and brush under the rug that they actually are very racist in terms of the way that they view the Middle East. So those are all things I will be covering in part three. That sounds great. And I, you know, I really would urge people to go look at it. You know, the, even if you have to rent it, it's very reasonable and it is definitely worth, worth doing. So I, I want to thank you, Robbie, for joining us and thanks for sharing this. Maybe uh, when three is out, maybe we'll get together and talk about it again sometime. But thanks very much for joining us. I'd love to. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thanks. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in to The Liberty Report. Uh, please be sure to follow The Liberty Report on YouTube, youtube.com backslash Ron Paul Liberty Report. Subscribe to the show and you'll get to see all of the things that we've done. We're going on 240 or so episodes. Uh, we do this every day. So please take the time to subscribe. And thank you again for joining us.